0: And the delays that she got in her care almost resulted in her death. And I couldn't help but think about you during this story because I thought nobody listened to her when she went into the hospital and all they could see was that she was expecting a baby. So I'm just not quite sure how to best serve those patients or to get that like blinder off. Do you have any ideas about that?
1: Yeah, listen to them. And this person has been with their pregnancy from conception. So for me, the most valuable advice I can give to anyone in the emergency department is to listen to that person.
0: Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. On today's episode, we talked to Dr. Rebecca Seagraves. She is a pelvic health specialist, a doula, and an expert at providing physical therapy care for patients who are giving birth or who have given birth. Today, she talks to us about how to manage patients who might be pregnant or postpartum in the emergency department, including all those high-risk considerations we should know about. Are there differences you need to make in your practice when you have an individual patient who might be pregnant? Tune in to find out. Thanks for listening. welcome back to In the ED Now. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and I am thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Rebecca Seagrass. We're the coolest Rebecca PTs out there. I'm not, I'm going to take some flack for that, but I'm totally chill with that. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. What an honor.
0: Oh, stop. But tell me, tell me about yourself so that everybody else knows how cool you are.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, I am a physical therapist and an avid cyclist. I love uh, road biking, mountain biking, and that really just brings me joy, just helps me kind of see the the joy also in the work that I do in women's health and maternal health. And uh, yeah, I'm just happy to be here.
0: So I I noticed that you strategically forgot to mention that you're like a huge trailblazer in the physical therapy world in the areas of maternal health.
1: I didn't forget to mention it, but I, I do want to say um, that term trailblazer, I, I, I cannot coin that at all. Um, one of the things that I found kind of just introducing what brings me joy is more of a segue into how I bring that joy into the work that I do. It doesn't really define me. The work that I do doesn't define me. The things that bring me joy define me more. And so I've not blazed any trails. I just enjoy them. I enjoy them on a bike. I enjoy them in my profession. I enjoy treating people who don't have access to services like everyone else. And that's the maternal population. And so a lot of people that I follow in their footsteps, Dr. Joanne Michelle Martin, Dr. Catherine Sylvester, um, uh, just so many people, uh, Ginger uh, Garner, there's so many trailblazers that have been doing this before me that I just really probably shed light on an issue, um, and that's just providing access to OT and PT in the hospital for the birthing population who comes to the hospital like everyone else, right? And so that's that's really kind of my contribution to, you know, this profession, but who I am, what I love really is just being outside trail therapy is what i call it
0: and that's why you're coming back to colorado
1: oh absolutely absolutely so
0: by the time this episode is released hopefully we are having like drinks in person and hanging out again so i can't wait for that but you're not an emergency department pt
1: no i'm not
0: so maybe somebody's like why are you on this podcast so what i am going to ask you i'm going to ask you what do i as an emergency pt need to know about what you know so that I can be better. Because one of the biggest things about practicing in the emergency department is that we have to be at the top of our scope. And that includes the entire human patient population, right? From pediatrics all the way on to geriatrics, from birth to hospice, right? Like, so we need to be able to practice in that whole space. Do I need to specialize in that whole space? Absolutely not. Do I need to not mess it up and get that person to the best next step? Absolutely. And I know that there are a lot of disparities around this particular care area and the ED might be a place where we see a lot of that.
1: Absolutely. So I've been consulted to the ED. You know, So there is an ED for usually most maternity hospitals will have an emergency department that primarily services the birth population. So when you ask me, am I an EDPT? Not at all. <laughs> I will not say, that I treat the general population that's coming into the emergency department. Have I been consulted several times in the obstetric emergency department? Absolutely, yes. And so what I realized is that the areas that I've done that in have been metropolitan areas with a lot of access to care. The areas that I lived in, rural areas that have one emergency department for the whole town, right? also sees birthing individuals show up to that hospital for whatever reason, and there may be a PT that serves in that hospital and might recognize something that would help the team facilitate care for that individual a lot faster. And so the the services that I've provided on the OBED, the obstetrics emergency department, has been to treat individuals who are coming in with low back pain after it's been ruled out that there's nothing wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with their baby. And so what I would say for anyone treating in the emergency department is just be aware of pregnancy related or birth related things that may show up as musculoskeletal issues or may be indicative that there's a bigger emergency going on and you could communicate to the team a lot faster.
0: So what should we look out for?
1: Definitely anything that signs and symptoms of hemorrhage, hemorrhage during Mm -hmm. pregnancy and then hemorrhage soon after um, birth. And so the individuals that have come to the emergency department after birth, let's start with that population because that's a little bit, I would say more top of mind right now for me is that there's this zero to six week period where. If you had a baby in the hospital, you're sent home within 24 to 48 hours, even after a major abdominal surgery, like a C-section during that zero to six week period, your recovery is probably unlike anyone else's after a major procedure. Okay. So I often compare the birthing population to an abdominal surgery population, for example, or someone who's had an elective surgery, joint replacement, spine surgery, whatever it is, they're usually doing a lot more during the zero to six week period, then the individuals that we would see in the hospital as an OT or PT, send home with a recovery plan, have them rest a little bit more, maybe follow up with outpatient and just get the care that anyone would expect to receive. The birthing population on the other hand could actually be in encountering uh, internal bleeding that's dropping their hemoglobin, causing them to feel weak, causing them to feel fatigued, dizzy, causing their heart rate to to rise, uh, causing signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, which is a condition that can actually occur during pregnancy and after birth, and then causing them to have um, signs and symptoms of, of infection that their team may not be aware of. And so as an EDPT, you're really having to take probably the most thorough history that you can possibly take on what their environment and what their life or journey has been from the hospital to what they were doing at home. And so that may come in um, showing signs and symptoms of a pain somewhere, but it actually may be that they're bleeding internally, that they are having an infection. Taking vital signs is super important in this population and just ruling out anything that's a red flag. And so once the team has has done that, that um, kind of uh, groundwork, then you can really start to address A lot of the social determinants of health that's probably driving that individual to be doing a lot more than they ought to be doing in that recovery period.
0: Yeah, I'm currently recovering from an elective orthopedic surgery and have had three children. And I can tell you this is easier in some ways and and different in other ways, but. When you go home from a major procedure like that, and you have a whole nother human to take care of that you maybe don't know how to take care of, um, and you can't sleep and you can't rest and you can't get comfortable, there's a lot going on there for sure. The thing that I um, have been thinking about lately, I just finished a book called In Shock. Have you heard of this book?
1: I've not. Yeah. No.
0: Dr. Rana Adish, and she was seven months pregnant and was hemorrhaging and didn't know it. And, and when she got to the emergency department, he was, she's an ICU physician and she got there and she was like, I need a surgeon. Like she knew something really bad was happening, but they immediately triaged her to OB. And then once she had been triaged in OB, OB was immediately like, it's probably just, you know, just maybe you're having contractions. Like, let's look at the baby, like, and the delays that she got in her care almost resulted in her death. And by the time they finally figured out what was happening, she had almost lost her entire blood volume Mm -hmm. into her abdominal cavity. Um, and then that led to ICU stays like so many complications later, like this whole journey that she went on. And I couldn't help but think about you during this story because I thought nobody listened to her when she went into the hospital and all they could see was that she was expecting a baby. And I think too, that that's probably an approach we as physical therapists have a lot in the ED too. When somebody comes in with musculoskeletal pain, who's also pregnant. I think we have this set of preconceived notions about what the solution is, what the problem is, what this patient needs and, Oh, don't worry. It'll get better when you're not pregnant anymore. I hear that a lot also. So I'm just not quite sure how to best serve those patients or to get that like blinder off so people aren't just focused on that. Do you have any ideas about that?
1: Yeah, listen to them. Like that that was a case of, of where we listened to them. There's no better expert of the body and the function and the red flags and the this and the that than the person who's living in it, who's living in that body. And this person has been with their pregnancy from conception. So for me, the most valuable advice I can give to anyone in the emergency department is to listen to that person. This reminds me of a case where I was actually consulted on a woman who had low back pain, right? It was the OBED. I had done everything that I had done with patients prior before. Um, They had done their workup, whichever that that was. And to be honest with you, I cannot really remember how in depth they've gone. But it seemed to be along the same like delayed reaction. And so I could only do what I knew best at the time with the information was I listened to the person. She had been having the pain, came on pretty suddenly a couple days before, but then it was getting worse. We did some movements, maybe some stretching, but just something just didn't feel right. Didn't feel musculoskeletal helped a little bit. She just liked the fact that there was someone putting their hands on her doing something. She had been sitting in the bed probably for several hours, just in that position, afraid to get up and walk or move. And so I at least gave her the confidence to do that. Like at least move, stretch. Don't let, you know, your body kind of hold on. To this anxiety physically that you're feeling right now while your team is still figuring things out. The next day she lost her baby. There was nothing that anyone could say that would make me feel like I didn't have something to do with that. I I I, at that time I, I took a lot of credit for a lot of things, still dealing with that. But there was nothing at that time that someone couldn't say, maybe it was a movement, maybe it was a stretch. And it's taken me years to figure out, well, maybe it was just all of it. Maybe it was, there was not enough of us listening to her and really putting together what was happening and then preparing her you know, for, for something that maybe was gonna happen anyway. But that was kind of the piece that I couldn't let go of was what did that follow-up look like? What could I have done differently? Maybe it was nothing or maybe it was just communicating to the team, we have to keep looking, you know? And I don't know that I did that in my assessment to be honest with you. In the OBED, I was so used to just writing what I did, what I thought, what I prescribed or what I recommended but not really actually tying in back the loop to the other providers to say, this does not appear to be musculoskeletal in nature. This does not appear to be this. This does not appear to be this recommending such and such, whatever that is. And if I didn't know what that is, at least just closing the loop and just saying it's not this. Mm -hmm. And being definitive with that. I always felt like in my assessment, I had to just make it musculoskeletal. Say I did a stretch or two. Make it seem like I was part of the team. And that's sometimes not something that we should be doing if we, if we really truly don't think is something that's PT related is something that we could actually help or change. We just need to listen to people.
0: Yeah. And I think that's part of being a differential diagnostician, right? Like I find that in the ED, the team really relies on us to be the musculoskeletal experts. And sometimes that expertise means knowing it's not our field to be playing on. And so we have had patients come in with low back pain who actually ended up having miscarriages in progress. And we were able to help differentially diagnose that because was not musculoskeletal low back pain, truly. Or I had talked to students yesterday about a case of um, low back pain that did not feel musculoskeletal. My dog is going to join this podcast today. Okay. Um, and really, after completing an abdominal exam and getting that patient for their imaging, it turned out to be peritoneal cancer. And the reason we were able to really establish that because the patient's symptoms were so benign, it was because they, they were not linked to any musculoskeletal source, even though the complaint was low back pain. And so I think that may be just what you said, where we really find our expertise is being the person that helps rule out those things. And when we can rule them in, we're absolutely the right person, right? Like I'm going to get you moving. And I have never had patients who are more relieved than pregnant people who are having so much pain and they've been dealing with it and they're not sleeping and you just help them and they're like, like, that's so satisfying when you can't actually help somebody. But I think we need to own both ends of that. Know when we can't help you, when it might be an emergency. Communicate close the loop with the team, move that patient to the next step, whether it's a, a happy next step or a not happy next step, or we help that patient find a better way to move so that they're not suffering through their pregnancy. I had a pregnancy like that. That was, Awful. um, and it just felt like no one cared. Everyone just kept saying that's normal. Um, but does it have to be
1: such a, I mean, you're kind of hitting on so many points there. Is it normal, right? who, Who determines that, right? It's, is abnormal pain normal, like an abnormally high level of pain. And I mean, many of my contemporaries would say no, like, it's not normal to be like, uncomfortable for that long, to where you're, you're just, miserable. Misery is not normal, right? Especially during a time where everyone's Mm -hmm. so happy and feeling so much joy, right? For your pregnancy, for the birth, for all of it. And so misery is not normal, right? And so I cannot tell you enough how awesome it was to be on that side of it, to actually have someone feel better right? Because of an intervention that you did while they were pregnant.
0: It's just, just changes everything and the circumstances so much. But I think the other thing that I want to ask you about are, especially in the emergency department, some of the inherent biases that providers might have about pain. And some of the different demographics about pain and how we treat people about pain, because I feel like the ED in particular, like everybody's in pain, it seems like, and I feel like we discount pain badly in many instances. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, with pregnancy, absolutely. Pregnancy around the birth, um, unfortunately, implicit bias, that was actually, um, one of the, the the kind of the points that we actually used in a recent uh, publication that we submitted to the physical therapy journal. And it was a lot of implicit bias on how we decide who receives access to our services, whether it's in the emergency mm. department, whether it's during the hospital admission for a high-risk pregnancy whether it's the uh, hospital admission for postpartum recovery, we're implicit, okay, in terms of, of our bias. We're using implicit bias to make those judgments. We're not aware of it, right? We've kind of categorized people who are pregnant, who have just given birth as it's normal to be that uncomfortable. It's normal to have this level of pain. It's normal to not be able to walk the same way that you're able to, or, or negotiate stairs. You know, you just have to get through it. So we're not going to, uh, uh spend, uh, time or unnecessary services with PT to help you take those first few steps after a major abdominal surgery, which is a C-section. Um, we're not going to take time to give you these services if you're coming into the ED and you're feeling this discomfort, because that's normal, right? We've normalized misery, right? Which which we have to really categorize it that way. People are telling us that they're miserable, so much so that they're going to the emergency department and they're not going and waiting for their OBGYN to assess them, to evaluate them, to, to make the best recommendation. They're that miserable that they're willing to wait in the ED for care, right? Which is not an Mm -hmm. environment that anybody really Mm -hmm. wants to be in when you're pregnant or when you just gave birth or ever, right? And so to me, in terms of implicit bias, I think that that's a huge issue when we're talking about how we determine if this is truly an emergency where we all need to be hands on deck, like the woman who was actually internally bleeding, or the patient that I saw who had an emergent cesarean hysterectomy at 28 weeks, right? Because there were concerns that were not being met because, hey, well, you're, you know, far enough along, you know, this is normal. You're having pain. That's normal for being that far along into your pregnancy. We're not going to do anything uh, too drastic. And so there was delayed intervention because of that right? So her pain was being dismissed. And yet she was losing um, blood to where also she could have lost her life, but she lost her uterus to save her life, right? And have her baby in the NICU. These are real stories that are occurring now. And so in terms of implicit bias, I mean, it's a huge thing that we, and, and this is supported, you know, with with data, we can't change our implicit bias. That's kind of a big... Shocker for everyone. We cannot change the implicit bias we have. It's just important that we recognize it. We all recognize it. We all recognize the part that it has and how we we triage people, right? How we prioritize care for, for people.
0: Wow. I'm going to have to think about that in all of my patients as well too, I think. and And I think a lot of us who work in the ED like to think that we're above that, right? So we see everybody. We're the safety net. We see every patient. We don't turn anybody away. But in some ways, because we work in the ED, we probably have a different set of implicit biases than other providers might because of the different things that we see and the different experiences that we have. So I'm gonna to have to think about that one for a while, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a little it's
1: it's a little for me. I like to say behavior can be changed, right? Human psychology, human behavior, like we can be changed, we can we can improve upon that. When it comes to implicit bias, we're not really aware of it. It, it happens so early, right? Um, mm-hmm. On, you know, from from how we're formed, right? That I think is, is really, it was kind of like a shocker for me to to start reading and reading and reading and just like realizing, oh man, we we probably we really can't do anything about that. Like my preferences are my preferences. You know, what what I prefer, what I lean towards, um, how I stereotype. That's just something that inherently, I can't change, but I can recognize it. and I can I can absolutely see how it impacts my relationships with people. And that's probably the most important thing you can do in the emergency department is because you may have a team that's kind of telling you this person is anxious, you know, this person, um, you know, pain seeking, whatever it is, you know, um, intervention seeking, whatever it is. And you're going to have to take that explicit bias and then really, really evaluate your own implicit bias and see how you proceed from there. And far too much. I mean, we've seen in the OBED kind of those cases where, a lot of it is overshadowed by what the team is saying. You have to, you have to take what the team is saying, but then really self-evaluate. How are you going to proceed in this case? How are you going to proceed in this, this scenario?
0: I think we're the right people to do it. And I'm going to go back to what you said about talking to your patient and taking the right history. If somebody is listening right now and they're like, I don't even know where to start if a pregnant person walks into the ED, I don't even know what to ask them. Where would you suggest they begin?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, this is a very good question. I guess, where would you start with anyone? Right. Mm-hmm. My, my, my reaction, I guess right now is almost like, well, why, why are we treating them differently? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. If we see everyone, I mean, if you think about it, I think this is probably what's been mind blowing for me. Right. I've, treated in all these different settings and inherently as a physical therapist, you know, I, I've said to people, I've said to my students, I treat anyone who walks through the door. Right. But I change my treatment. I change the way I speak to that person just based on either the scenario, the situation, uh, you know, what, whatever the, the, the issue or the conditions are around that kind of care. Like I adapt, I adapt to the person, and so I almost think with the pregnancy population, it feels almost as if my adaptation methods, right, should also apply to them. Mm-hmm. If they're coming in in pain and I'm treating them in the ED and I have to decide as a team member, should this person be admitted? Should this person uh, uh be seen ASAP emergently uh via surgery. Should we be getting imaging? Or are they okay to go, you know, home? I can make that decision based on my evaluation. Then I'm gonna collect a history that gives me a snapshot of the past 24 to 48 hours, right? Because that's the emergent scenario I'm expecting to tell me or give me the most information as to why they're in the emergency department and not in their OBGYN's office. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the most important history taking is what you would do for anyone coming into the ED is what has the past 24 to 48 hours, what changed, right? That's almost my first question, what's changed? What's been your norm up until this point? What have you um, been experiencing? Where are you right now? Um, and then go from there in terms of the history, taking the red flags, just going down this path of what has been your birth experience like, like, uh, like up until this point. When did you start noticing changes? And then just go down that path of asking questions. And that's really kind of the most powerful thing you can do is just pause and listen. All right, and that's for anyone. What I'm having trouble. He- finding right now in answering this question is the deeper why why would we not do that with this population if we do it for everyone else right i think
0: it's fear i think it's being afraid to mess something up because i think we have this perception that pregnant individuals are fragile or they're different. Or there's a certain set of rules that they should be treated by, or there are guidelines. Just like, I mean, I think to a certain extent, if you have a patient who comes in with metastatic cancer, you're also gonna be like, huh, I wanna be careful here. And maybe somebody who is young, fit, healthy without any other kind of like comorbid medical condition. So I think, I think what it is is it just feels kind of like almost like a scary comorbidity for some people.
1: My, um, my father in July, actually it was June, but his surgery was in July, July 5th, but June, 2023, I'm actually doing like a webinar that night with the acute care section of the APTA, this whole panel. And meanwhile, my dad is being transported by ambulance to the emergency department. He's in excruciating abdominal pain. I don't find out until the next morning. He could have died, right? But for him, it felt like they were delaying interventions or examinations or whatever for hours. Yeah. And so, long story short, they finally find that his colon is 100% obstructed. He has stage four metastatic cancer. Last week, the week before, he was running 15 miles, right? um a day I mean incredibly fit uh, it's been vegetarian my whole life like all these things that just didn't match up like what in the world how do you jump from like fit 15 miles a day to metastatic stage four colon cancer and for me doing the work that I'm doing if I'm in the ED and I'm a PT and I'm seeing this individual and they have pain and, you know, we're not really moving on anything. We just want to make sure we want to rule out that it's not musculoskeletal. I would be so scared, right? I'd be so nervous, right? Because to me, I don't know. I feel like anyone fits into that category of fear. That's why we're in the health professions because we, at that point in time, have someone's life, Kind of in our yes. hands, like we're responsible for their life, or the life of their unborn child, and that to me is not a um, it's not a lesson in in different patient populations that we need to get more comfortable with treating. It's a lesson for ourselves. What do we need uh-huh. to do for ourselves that just makes us comfortable with the unknown? And so instead of trying to kind of like force a lot more education of the pregnancy and postpartum population, I've actually done more of a deeper dive into just human behavior and psychology. Like what, what causes us, right. To kind of dig deeper in ourselves to kind of find out what we're uncomfortable with first. And that's when you really can start recognizing your implicit bias, because you'll find that the pregnancy and postpartum population, they're not Different really from anyone else. They're a human that's dealing with something that's uncomfortable. And so, what in, a, in, in ourselves are we dealing with that's so uncomfortable where we're even more uncomfortable to treat that person, to treat that human? And that's to me, that's probably what the deeper conversation is. What makes us uncomfortable in treating certain people? Whether it's a Black man with stage four colon cancer. Which, you know, aside from that, I had to advocate five times for my dad to re- receive PT in the hospital during his stay. After his surgery, really? I had to advocate five times to get a physical therapist in the room. What they did was they gave him a trapeze above his bed oh, to get out of bed. Not, I cannot lie. Like he had a colon surgery and he was given a mechanism to pull himself out of bed. So so that's kind of my, my, my whole premise is yes, I treat individuals during high risk pregnancy, immediately after birth in the hospital, but I also treat other human beings. And I find that there's kind of this like similarity between all of them. They're just people who are seeking care. And we as responsible healthcare providers are deciding If we're comfortable enough with that, that's the conversation we should be having. Are you comfortable enough providing care across all patient populations, across all demographics, race, uh, financial um, uh, background, uh, insurance type, all of it? And if you're not, let's talk about that. Let's not blame the patient population.
0: Yeah, I think you just explained top of scope practice really eloquently, because I think that's the goal. The goal is not that we see the diagnosis. The goal is not that we see the individual um, name or their background, where they came from, particularly in the ED. And I think that's that's one of the most beautiful things about practicing in the ED, is that if you really want to see humanity as it is, that's the place to practice. And I think you really raise a good point. And hopefully everybody that's listening is feeling like I am and thinking, what do I need to look at within myself so that I'm approaching each patient the most openly that I can. And I'm not getting afraid of what I don't know because I think you're right. And and people ask me all the time, do you have to be a specialist to practice in the ED? And I think that what you just explained really indicates, no, you, you don't have to, but you have to be willing. You have to be willing to try. You have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to grow. And if I say to you, Hey, I'm just not comfortable treating patients who are pregnant. And I, and you say, why? And I say, gosh, you know, I think it's a knowledge deficit, actually. That's easily fixable, but maybe it's not, maybe it's not a knowledge deficit. Maybe it's a past trauma that I hold myself. Maybe it's something, uh, unrelated. And maybe I just, I don't like it. Like, I don't know, like, but I think there that you really raise a good point that we need to be thinking about why we feel like we can't evaluate a patient. And I also think we need to free ourselves from the expectation of knowing the answer every time.
1: I really, I mean, I, I agree with that. I I honestly, I thought there was a knowledge gap I had when I first started working um, in acute care and it was huge. I mean, that's yeah. what competencies were for, right? And then I found, okay, once I passed the competency, once I passed the competency for the ICU, once I passed the competency for the ED, I was kind of like breaking my stride, but there would be always some patient and some diagnoses I had never even heard of. Google. But then I was thinking like, you know, at the end of the day, I was starting to identify who I was comfortable with, who I wasn't. And I think that that was probably the most powerful I can, could do professionally. And the gift that I could give to my patients is finding a person that was better suited for them. Mm -hmm. What I think I struggle with the most and hearing that someone has knowledge deficits is that they don't pass that person along to the right person. It almost is like this person has now stopped, put a roadblock and there's no detour sign. Yes. And I think I, I can't really, I can't say enough how, um, Unfortunate that is for the person, right? Because we can we can absolutely. I mean, I think that that's growth, right? When you find that you're not comfortable treating someone, or you don't have enough knowledge about that particular condition, or that particular population, or just their journey, absolutely fine. That can be fixed. What Mm -hmm. can't be fixed is when you've put a roadblock, and now that person has either nowhere to go, or they're even more delayed, and it could actually be an emergency situation where if we pass the buck or we at, at least had someone from our profession better suited to be in the ED for that particular individual that we didn't train or onboard the right people to be in the ED and that's where i find that ED PT practice is top of scope because when you can practice there you can practice anywhere
0: anywhere and
1: if we can train more students while they're in school about ED practice or at least create a pathway for entry-level providers to get that kind of training, then we can no longer say, I'm uncomfortable treating the pregnant and postpartum population. Wait, why? Well, if you are, we actually have mechanisms built in for that. We've trained, we've made you know sure that we've created competencies for, so that every unit in the hospital is co- covered, so that every patient population, no matter if they're coming into the ED, no matter if they're coming on the, the, the maternal uh, maternity unit, no matter if they're on the neurology floor, whatever it is, neuro ICU, trauma, all of it, we have that patient population covered with a competent provider.
0: Yes, it, 100%. And I think the other situation that happens sometimes is when you have a patient population, like you alluded to, who you really just don't have any idea, it's something you've never heard of, there's nobody else that knows either, That is when you use your familiar tools in unfamiliar ways and you take the same systematic approach with that patient that you would with other people. And if you don't know the answer at the end, that's okay. At least you get them moving in the right direction and you make sure nothing super scary is happening. And I think those are all really good takeaways. So normally I would say, hey, like what are your parting thoughts? But I feel like you just really summed it up so nicely. But do you have any other like brilliant gems that you want to lay on people?
1: I think honestly, top of scope, for me is a journey. It's not a destination, yes. right? It's all just, the joy
0: is in the climb. The joy is in the climb. The,
1: the, the, the joy for me is the ladder.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Right. I think about that with every race I'm doing, right. I now have gotten like this newfound passion into, you know, for um, endurance mountain biking. You know, at first it was like mountain biking, but short spurts, like never as long as I would do on a road bike. And now it's like, I want to go longer on trail, which is just inherently more difficult. It's so demanding, you know, and I found that the journey is just exploring new things about what I'm doing already. It's not really like getting to the finish line and just ending the race. It's enjoying the ride. And Tapasco for me has been a ride. It has been an incredible Trill, blazing. I feel like I'm like following the heat and the fire and the passion of those before me, in front of me. But it's been this incredible ride that just keeps teaching me more and more and more. So I say for anyone practicing the ED, enjoy the ride. Find the joy in what you're doing. Find joy in learning about new patient populations. And find joy in just discovering things about yourself, finding What doesn't bring you joy? What makes you uncomfortable? What you don't feel ready for? But then find joy in finding the people who are better suited so that that person just receives the wraparound care that they need and they're not lost. They don't hit the the barrier or the roadblock without a detour sign. You've already built that. You've already made a way for them to keep going, for them to enjoy their journey as well.
0: Beautiful. How can people find you?
1: everywhere. (laughs) I try to be as, as, as findable as possible these days. My name, Rebecca Seagraves, you can find me usually somewhere on all platforms saying something about whatever's going on that day. Um, speaking, definitely advocating for this patient population just to receive access to rehab services. So that's enhanced recovery after delivery inspired by enhanced recovery after surgery, uh, for those who are familiar with that surgical protocol, I did not include rehab, uh, in it. So I'd created a protocol or a program that just provides the OB population with our services, OT and PT. And so enhanced recovery after delivery pelvic health network, that's kind of my hub of where I just put my ideas and connect with different people that's doing similar work. And, uh, and yeah just anywhere. Just reach out, say hi.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thank you. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at theeddpt.com you're officially discharged.